It's good to be reminded that God's goodness is running after us, that his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, literally will pursue us. It's hard to believe that when you're backed into a corner, when you feel like there's kind of no way out, um, there's, there's no escape, there's, there aren't any human alternatives, there's nothing you can do uh, to make it better, you know, to, to fix the situation. And and again and again, the Bible gives us depictions of people going through those circumstances, through you know, valleys, through sadness, through death, through sin, through sickness. Um, one of the greatest examples of a situation like that we find in Exodus chapter 14. I invite you to open your Bibles there. Uh, we're, if you're just joining us, we're doing this series. Uh, we had our, our 20th anniversary as a church back in March, and so we're doing this series subsequent to that called 20 Chapters of redemptive history. These are 20 chapters in the Bible that we feel like you need to be familiar with. You need to know. These are Old Testament chapters, right? We're not as familiar typically with the Old Testament. And if you're brand new to the Bible and to church and all that, uh, then then certainly this is stuff that would be really helpful for us to remember. So I'm going to pick up uh, near the uh, middle of the chapter, but just to set the stage, you know, Israel's been in slavery in Egypt uh, and Pharaoh is oppressing them. Uh, they're, They're under great hardship. And as we've, we've heard in prior weeks, that, that God, God saw what was going on. He heard their cry. He remembered his covenant. And God knew. God knew what was going on. He knew about their, uh, their, their suffering, and he knew about Egypt's injustice. And so he's going to act. And how he acted was uh, the plagues, right? And then the, the Passover. And then Israel, uh, Pharaoh lets Israel go. They go out into the wilderness, and God leads them and they find themselves on the edge of the Red Sea. And now Pharaoh has had a change of mind and he's, he's on the pursuit and he's going, no, we're going to kill him. We're, we're going to go after Israel. And so Israel 21, um, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And then we'll, we'll kind of reflect back on some of the earlier verses. So keep, keep Exodus 14 open after we read these words. So then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. In the midst of the sea undried it. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. 
And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared. Lord, would you bless the reading and hearing and receiving of your word. May we see your power. May we see Jesus. May we know his goodness and his salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So, as I said, you know, people are pretty familiar with the the Red Sea. Like, uh, if you've been in church, you know about the Red Sea. If you've been in Sunday school, you know about the Red Sea. Even if you haven't been in church, like, you know about the Red Sea. Typically, you know stories about how all the, you know, the scientists and skeptics say that, well, the Red Sea couldn't have ever really happened that way. And, you know, you kind of hear the uh, the, the, the wrong side of the story. Uh, we believe this happened. We believe God does miracles. We believe it works supernaturally. Even uses natural things like the wind to create supernatural phenomenon like the parting of, of you know, Red Sea. We don't know where along the Red Sea Israel was. That's as unknown. But there's somewhere up against the, the edge of that body of water or one of those two fingers you know, north of the Red Sea. I forget my geography, what those names are, but Gulf of something, Gulf of something. It's a big body of water they can't cross. Large enough that, you know, Exodus describes it as a wall of water on the right hand and the left hand when the Lord does uh, part that body of water. But I want to ask you a couple of questions, regardless of your familiarity with this scene, with this, this story. Like, there's a couple of things that I think might be like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Or, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that or I didn't see that, you know, in, in this account. First thing is, did you know that this happened at night? Did you catch that? Like all of our depictions, paintings, even the front of your bulletin, you know, it's kind of dark because I was trying to, to, to give you a picture of how it happened. It was at night. It wasn't during the day. Uh, contrary to, you know, the films and the, the media and, and the depictions that we typically associate with the Red Sea, it happened at night to faith. And did you know that this was not some great act of faith on, on behalf of Israel? This wasn't Israel, you know, backed up against the, the edge of this enormous body of water. And here comes Egypt, and they're going, okay, all right, Lord, we're, we're waiting. We're here. We're trusting. You're, you said you'd deliver. So apart from, this was not Israel's finest hour. This was like their, one of their many worst hours. They are a hot mess. They are complaining. They are grumbling. They are doubting. Lord, you know, Look, uh, as I said, we're going to look at a couple of the prior verses. So if you've got verses, uh, chapter 14 open, look at verses 11 and 12. So they see Egypt bearing down on them. They can't go anywhere. They're stuck. They're trapped. And they go to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Like, how's that? How's that? Like, they're, they're just going off on Moses. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Blaming Moses. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. We don't want to serve God. We don't want God's leader. We want you to leave us alone so that we may just live our life in slavery, but a modicum of sort of self-reliance and sort of a self-made peace. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. not their finest hour. This is not a great picture of faithfulness. It is a great example of God's mercy, though. It's this beautiful picture 
of God's merciful miracle that prevents a genocide. But do you know how this story way back in Exodus, do you know how the Red Sea applies to you? Do you know what happened at night? Do you know this wasn't Israel's finest hour? Do you know what this has to do with you? I mean, can you connect the dots to, oh yeah, God's speaking to me, you know, in, in, in this section of scripture. Um, here's really where we're going. Where is our focus? Like Israel's focused on Egypt instead of on God. God is, is working these circumstances so that they are completely reliant upon him, that they are focused on God for their deliverance and on their protection and everything that they need. And, and it, this is where it kind of meets, the rubber hits the road for us. Where are we focused on our own protection, our own provision, and, and so on? Have we focused on the Lord? Are we focused on, on ourselves? Are we focused on our problems? Are we just, you know, where is our attention? And so as we look at this, we see God's labor. He's endeavoring to get Israel's focus off of Egypt onto himself Back in verses 6 and 7, um, in, in chapter 14, you see that Pharaoh has determined he's going to pursue Israel. He said, initially said he's going to let them go, but he changed his mind. He says he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And, uh, and then verse 9, it says the Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them and camped at the sea. We hear chariots and we think, okay, Ben-Hur, that's nice and quaint. But these are, these are um, uh, Israel, Egypt's a superpower, right? There is this international, uh, these, these are very high-tech uh, pieces of warfare uh, at, at that time. And we think of them as quaint, but they're deadly. And they're going to overrun anybody on foot trying to escape. And so Israel's as good as dead uh, because of the superpower that's bearing down on them. You know, uh, think of, of, you know, Russia and Ukraine, right? So, but before Russia invaded Ukraine, um, do you remember the news stories where they, you know, you've got reporters in, in Kiev, um, you know, in Odessa or any other cities, and they're just watching the Ukrainians and they're, they're just going about their, their daily lives and they're going shopping and they're going to, you know, out for, for drinks and, you know, parents with their kids in the playground. And so the world is watching Putin, uh, you know, amass his army on the border of Ukraine, the tanks and the artillery and the, and the infantry. And, and, and the world's just going, what's going to happen? People on the street in, the, in Ukraine are going, like, how, how are you doing? You're just going off. Like, they're like, well, what choice do we have? What else can we do? We're, we're powerless. And I remember one woman was describing it you know, and, and of course, there, some things are, are translated, but, uh, but she was comparing their existence to being in a small car on the interstate with an enormous semi-truck right beside you, bearing down. You know, is it going to, does it see me? Does the, does the truck see me? You know, and, 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 the, and then, of course, we know what happens. The truck goes, mm. but Ukraine has allies. Ukraine has weapons. Ukraine can fight back. I mean, the odds are crazy. But Israel, not so much. They got nothing. They are absolutely helpless. Verse 10 says that when Pharaoh drew near, 
the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So it's easy uh, to see the, the world's power, the world's power structures and live in fear of those structures. You know, the powerless are always gonna fear their oppressors. They're always gonna fear those who can control them and take advantage of them. But you know who else is afraid? The people in power. They're afraid of losing their power. They don't lose their power. Everybody's afraid of power. How do you use power properly? And God shows us through this salvation, through this deliverance. But I want you to see there in verse 10 that the focus of Israel is they are behold the they are beholding the Egyptians. And they're they're terribly afraid of this army that's marching against change their view, and that he would divert their attention away, saying, Fear not, stand firm, and see, look. And behold, the salvation of the Lord. He will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Just be still. Watch God work on your behalf. This reminds me of this passage in Isaiah 35. Listen to these comforting words from the prophet Isaiah. Strengthen the weak hand. Make firm the the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. How many of us have an anxious heart? How many of you can relate to weak hands and feeble knees? And you gotta ask yourself, where am I focusing? Where's my attention diverted to? Is it that person or that circumstance or that sickness or whatever it is? Is your focus on the Lord. Isaiah says, behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And here's where I want to walk through this whole deliverance through the Red Sea. And you know the curious thing? This is something that's really fascinating to me. God gives us timestamps. I mentioned before this happened at night. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, it happened at night. Maybe you're like, I didn't know it happened at night. Yeah, there are timestamps. Like look at verse 20. And it says, there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So this is this account of how the Lord was with his people. There was this cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory cloud. It was like a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And it was Israel's rear guard. God was, was leading them, you know, when, when they would and he would protect them when they were camped. And so when Egypt comes, God moves in between Israel and Egypt so that Egypt couldn't harm or touch uh, Israel as they were backed up against the Red Sea. And God does this. He moves to their rear guard. We're told it happens all night. So all night means all night. That means from about 9 p.m. That's the beginning of the night in that ancient culture. It's the first watch of the night is from 9 to midnight. And then you look at verse 22 It says that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And so we're we're, we're beginning at the beginning of the night, right? Because this happens all night. And because the rest of the events unfold the way they do, we know this is happening, you know, from the beginning of the night to maybe midnight. Maybe we're at midnight by this point where there's enough of a path that Israel can move through. 
And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And then Egypt goes in after Israel. God sends them into a panic, though. In verse 24, we get a very specific uh, timestamp. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic. Uh, the morning watch, we, we hear about that in the Psalms, you know, that we wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. That morning watch is the third watch. Uh, first watch is nine to midnight. Second watch is midnight to three. And third watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Right before morning. It's the darkest before the dawn, right? And so this is the wee hours when Egypt pursues Israel at 3 a.m. through the split sea. And then what happens? Well, Israel and Moses are by now on the other side of the Red Sea. And then God tells Moses to stretch out his hand again, and God reverses the miracle. And he drowns Egypt's army. Verse 27 says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And now it's when the morning appears, it's 6 a.m. And so you see this progression, you know, this, uh, these events that are uh, unfolding. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw them into the midst of the sea. And the deliverance is complete. And they're on the other side. Verse 30 says, the Lord saved Israel that day. It's now a new day. It's, uh, you know, 9 a.m. You know, it's the morning. The morning's full and the, from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Now where's their focus? Where's their attention? And then his servant Moses, right? Exodus 15, as you, if we were, we're not going to go there, but you know, read it later. It's the next day, and Israel is celebrating the Lord's deliverance. You hear the song of Moses and the song of Miriam, which basically is a version of sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider. He is thrown into the sea, where the Lord has acted on behalf of hot mess Israel, faithless Israel, who's focused on the Egyptians and are cursing Moses and saying, we wanted to serve the Egyptians instead of God. You know, and God still has mercy on them. And remember Isaiah, you know, we were looking at just a second ago, 35. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, behold your God. Here's the rest of those verses. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's what's coming. That's what's waiting for all of us on the other side. You know, on the other side of God's salvation and deliverance and protection is this day when sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Are you looking for that? Is that where your attention is? Or are we so kind of focused on problems and pain and our self-reliance and so on? God wants our focus to be on him. He's the one who saved Israel. This would have been a genocide apart from God's merciful miracle. It says in verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And look at, I mean, okay, it gets a little graphic right here right? So my apologies to little ears, but this is kind of the Bible, right? right? Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. They fear that they're on the other side and on the shore there are, you know, corpses, dead bodies. Like all throughout the Bible, um, I know a lot of us like to go to the beach uh, for vacations. Maybe you've got some plans this summer. You're going to head to some beach and enjoy the ocean. You know that people haven't always loved the ocean? (laughs) Uh, And in the ancient Near East, the ocean and the sea was this picture of death and judgment. Like it starts in the very beginning of the Bible. Verse 2 of chapter 1 of Genesis talks about how the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters, these chaotic waters that the Lord brings order and substance to. And you think about characters in the Old Testament like Jonah, and and he's judged and thrown into the sea, right? This picture of death, and he assumed he was dead. That's why these these, um, sailors didn't want to throw him into the ocean. And then you get Jesus coming along, and he's delivering this man from his legion of demons. The demons get sent into the pigs, and the pigs, where do they go? They run down the hill, and they are all drowned in the sea, this place of death and judgment and condemnation. And it goes on, like Jesus would talk about, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, you know, say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will be done for you. It's this picture of judgment, the, 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 the false religion you know, this fruitless sham of, you know, the temple and all the sacrifices that had no faith attached to it. God said he was going to judge it. And it was going to be thrown into the place of judgment and condemnation. And then lastly, when you get to the end of the Bible, the beginning of the Bible, you know, has this picture of chaos and sea and judgment. The end of the Bible has another picture of the sea. And in Revelation 21, it says that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I don't know what to do with those of you who appreciate a vacation at the ocean. But anyway, that's the picture of Revelation. Um, You know, a a really famous preacher and writer, A.W. Pink, said that the miracle of the Red Sea occupies a similar place in Old Testament scriptures as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus does in the New Testament, right? It is appealed to as a standard of measurement, as the supreme demonstration of God's power. And and then as the Old Testament continues, and we'll we'll look at more chapters of the Old Testament and the story of redemption, but again and again and again, the Old Testament tells God's people, look at what God did at the Red Sea. Behold your God. See the salvation that God has has worked for his people. And again and again, our focus is reoriented to what God does, his power, his salvation. Nehemiah does it. Nehemiah 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Psalms do it. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, his steadfast love endures forever. Isaiah 51, this is part of our our call to worship this morning. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over, right? So again and again and again at your problems, stop looking at yourself, your own sufficiency or insufficiency to deal with, you know, sin and 
pain and stuff that's way, way out of our control. So I asked earlier, what does the Red Sea have to do with us? Do you know how it fits in, in, in the story of redemption, right? This overarching story that God's telling about his power and his people. Most people um, that you talk to are pretty agreeable to the statement that God forgives our sins, right? Like, I, I'm not talking about the people at work or at school who, you know, they just give you the vibe of churchgoer or Christian or whatever. Like, yeah, of course they believe that God forgives sins. I'm talking about the person who gives you the opposite vibe. Like, oh, there's no way they're going to church. There's no way, you know, you, you just kind of, whatever the impression, right or wrong, you, you, you kind of put them in that box. I want you to ask them what they think about, you know, a forgiving God. Nine times out of 10, no matter kind of what their proclivity may be spiritually, they're going to say, yeah, of course God forgives sins. That's his job. This is what God does. God's a forgiving God. And yeah, I know I don't, you know, do everything right. And I know I make mistakes, but I do my best. I try hard. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I think God's good. I think we're good. I think I'm going to have my my sins forgiven, I think I'll go to heaven and, and you know, fill in the blank, whatever that eternal situation looks like for them. But how do they know? Like we all think this, but how do we know it's true? Like even for us in this room, you all know that God forgives sins. It's in this Bible, right? But how do you know this isn't just a theological theory? How do you know your sins are forgiven? Is there any way for you to know factually? Or is this just theological theory? Just like at the Red Sea when God saved Israel, through the waters of judgment, the place and the, 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 the place that nobody wanted to be and people were, people were afraid of the cross. This is a place of judgment. Nobody wants to go there. Nobody wants to be associated with the cross. And so just like God delivered Israel at the Red Sea, God's delivering us at the cross. And, and we get this picture in John's gospel um, of the crucifixion. And again, it's, it's, it's PG-13, maybe even worse. This isn't flannel graph stuff from BBS, but it is in the Bible, so we can go here. But I, I just want to acknowledge, yeah, I, I get it. There are little ears here, but, but let's hang in there. And it said, since it was the day of preparation, meaning Friday, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Saturdays, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, the two criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. Jesus had just had a conversation with the one of them and promised them, today you will be with me in paradise. And then, you know, the next thing that happened to that guy? The soldiers came and broke his legs. And then he died. And then he went to a place where sighing and sorrow would be no more. 
one of the soldiers, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't have to break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness, John speaking about himself. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. This is factual. This is a firsthand eyewitness account. It's not theological theory. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. That's from Zechariah 12. God just calls us to sin and look upon the one they have pierced. Look at the dead body of Jesus. The Red Sea, right? You know, we've all heard about it. VBS, Bible study, whatever. And, the, and, and it's in the little children's story Bibles. And, and they make it look like Israel's passing through the Atlanta Aquarium, right? And you got the wall of water here and the wall of water there and the plexiglass and the, and the whale and the kids are waving to the fishies. And there, there's Dory and there's Nemo. And isn't this cute? And isn't this lovely? And nobody ever tells you about the other side. And you don't hear about this in the VBS curriculum or on the flannel graphs where you see the dead bodies of the Egyptian soldiers washed up like flotsam and jetsam on the other side of the ocean. Proof. 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 That God had defeated their enemy. And we look at Jesus and his dead body on the cross and we have proof that God defeated sin and Satan and evil. And he rose again. He rose. He's not dead anymore. He's in his body, the right hand of God the Father, and he is advocating for us and protecting us and loving us until we go to be with him again, right? So we look at a body, not theological theory. We look at Jesus. He is our salvation. We don't look at ourselves. My goodness, Israel was a hot mess, right? How many of you are thinking, my faith is this big? And if God were to save you on the basis of your faith, would you have any hope? God doesn't save you on the basis of your faith. He saves you based on the object of your faith. And he loves to hear us pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He doesn't save you because you work really hard for him and do all these great things for him. He saves you because of Jesus. And he doesn't not save you because you're a wreck. And you're leaving you know, all the wreckage of relationships and bad decisions and just dumb things in the, in, in the wake you know, behind you. He's not going to not save you because of that. Why is he going to save us? Because of his mercy. Because it glorifies him. Because it shows us that he's a God who loves us. Jesus was drowned in a flood of God's judgment and darkness. Just like Egypt's army was. And he brings us through the other side and he went through that flood of shame and judgment so that you and I don't have to. He came through on the other side so that we could join him on the other side and that we could live forever with him in a new heaven and a new earth. God led Israel um, through the Red Sea to the other side and then on to Sinai. We're gonna look at that next week where God you know, moves us from salvation to sanctification. He doesn't save us because we're sanctified. He saves us and then he sanctifies us. 
you know, Deuteronomy gives that order. Uh, you know, Israel lost sight of God's glory. They were obsessed with the, the enemy and Egypt and its power. They forgot that God was more powerful. They were focused on their weakness. They were focused on Pharaoh's threat. And God had to refocus them on his mercy. God had to refocus them on his power. God has to refocus us. What to do? Are you looking at yourself and you feel weak? Are you looking at yourself? Do you feel ungodly? Are you looking at yourself? Do you think you're a sinner? Romans 5, 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, and God chose his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks that our salvation is not based on what we do to save ourselves, to protect ourselves, to deliver ourselves. It's not based on even our great faith. It's based on the object of our faith. It's not based on a theological theory. It's based on a person who loved us and gave himself for us. It's based on an empty tomb, a defeat of death, and a defeat of sin, and a defeat of Satan, so that we can join him in his victory. So... Or divert our attention away from our problems. Divert our attention away from ourselves. Divert our attention away from all the things that distract us from you. And let us see the world. Let us see ourselves and our neighbor in light of your power, of your mercy, of your goodness. Make us a church where this is our vision, where this is what we see. This is what we remind one another to see. And Lord, help us to repent quickly when we lose our focus, when we get distracted. And we pray that in particular for several of our church family and, and, and uh, friends. We ask for your blessing over the White Hills, for David and Stephanie and Sam and Miles. Thank you for how well they serve this church and how well they love us. Thanks for Joel and Teresa Wildermuth, for Andy. Please show them more of your glory and your power to bless them. I mean, thank you for John and Barbara Womer. Thank you for showing them the, the goodness and the mercy of Jesus and how well they encourage us. Thanks for the Woodworths. Please bless John and Joanna and their kids, Helena and Daniel and Thomas and Josiah. And just pray that they would see more and more of your deliverance and your protection. And they would see more of your glory. We pray that for our, our partners in ministry too. Lord, we ask for your mercy over uh, Lewis and Maggie Lovett at, uh, with RUF at, at WNL. And we just know that they're, they're finishing the, the school year. They're finishing their, their time with RUF. Please help them to close and finish well. Thank you for their, their faithful service to share Jesus, to keep students focused on Jesus. Thanks for Mercy Presbyterian and Forest and um, Lynchburg area and ask for your mercy on them and their new leadership, their new pastor. And Thank you for, for their ministry to their nation. Those who are fearful, those who are scared, those who are anxious, those who have weak hands and feeble knees and that they are showing them the power of Jesus. Would you bless the stride uh, next weekend? And Lord, provide for that ministry and help us to be partners with them. Lord, thanks for uh, our, our leadership here. We pray for the officer nominations. Please raise up new elders and deacons for us. Thank you for, um, for Kyle, our, our, one of our pastors, and ask for you to bless him and his family and praise you for his ministry to us. Lord, we, um, we do pause and, and continue to remember uh, just the hot spots in our, in our world and our community, and especially in Ukraine, and ask for your mercy for your protection. Lord, show yourself strong and mighty. Lord, would you bring 
mercy to them? Would you bring justice to their oppressors? Lord, would you uh, reverse the course of this war? Lord, would you bring repentance to the Russians? Lord, would you get glory? Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? There we ask. Deliver the Ukrainians from evil, we pray. Lord, deliver us from evil. Uh, Deliver us from sin, from ourselves. Show us more of your glory, we pray. And be pleased with these tithes and offerings and the rest of our worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.